my interest in culinary really morphed to more of an interest in wellness and like food as it relates to health. I had an experience of moving to Europe, working in dairies as a cheesemaker and just having a really radical transformation of my own health and physically getting stronger, feeling uh, my mood vastly improved on like a high fat, high protein diet. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and today's guest is someone who has an incredible story of entrepreneurship and just really using her passion for food and helping the environment be a better place to have created something extremely special. I am here with Anya Fernald, and she is the co-founder and CEO of Belcampo. Belcampo operates 27,000 acres of organic farmland in California and processes its own livestock for sale in its own butcher shops and restaurants. Anya has two decades of leadership and entrepreneurship experience in high-quality organic and premium foods. She has been recognized as one of Inc. Magazine's 100 female founders, one of the 40 under 40 by Food and Wine, named a nifty 50 by the New York Times, and has been profiled in the New Yorker and the New York Times, and has served as a regular judge on Iron Chef America on the Food Network since 2009. Anya's debut cookbook, Home Cooked, was released in 2016 with 10 Speed Press. So Anya, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, obviously your background is in food and you've been obviously very fortunate to be on Food Network's Iron Chef. Who is, would you say, if you could name it, like your favorite chef that you were a co-alongside judging with? Because I used to watch I used to watch that show all the time. Yeah. I mean, I'd say from just the elegance of the food, Morimoto was amazing. Mm. I always loved Morimoto. Um, When I did Next Iron Chef, my favorite was probably Dominique Crenn, who has since gone on to start Atelier Crenn and become one of the first like female three-star Michelins out there. She's amazing. Um, so, I, and, and then I'd say probably from like the regular recurring Iron Chef crew, the one that I vibe with the most would be Michael Simon. That um, awesome. His food's, yeah, his food's great and earthy. And, 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 you know, also Bobby Flay, his food is always sort of, you know, he does it one particular style, but it's very, very clean and well-executed. But, you know, it, it, that food at Iron Chef, okay, they have that limited amount of time, and they really do do it in that amount of time. But the tricks that they use is a lot of sous vide. So I personally, you know, people ask me, like, how amazing that you get to eat all that food. And I'm like, it takes me like three days to recover because a lot of that sous vide food, there's just tons of plastic in it, mm. you know, like because it's actually cooked in plastic for low and slow for a really long time. And I am not crazy about that in my body. So I was like, I mean, I, initially I would eat the whole thing. And then after a while, I started to just have little bits of it because I, I found that like I could feel it in my body, like all that kind of heavy plastic because the sous vide, it just changes things. And I also found that in that style of cooking, it's just like, it's a lot of clarified butter thrown at the end. It's that kind of, a, of approach because you're, it's so fast and it's not really about quality ingredients. It's really about like chefiness. Mm. So it's actually not totally aligned with like where I'm at. That said, you know, Morimoto's food was always just like really clean and light and basic and, and very elegant and minimal use of flavors and things. But yeah, that was a fun experience. You know, 
is neat to see just up close kind of that type of showmanship and how kind of you build mystique and build energy around things. So I was always impressed with those guys. They're all real stars. Yeah. I, and the reason I asked that is because a little bit about my backstory is fitness and, and nutrition kind of saved my life when I was incarcerated on felony drug charges. And I got out and ended up living with my grandparents and spending a lot of time there. And so what would I do to pass time was we would watch Food Network. And it kind of helped uh -huh. teach me to cook and got me really passionate about food. So like all those shows, yeah. I was just watching constantly. So I have a real appreciation, obviously, for what you do. And what's really fascinating about you is that you know you were a vegetarian and now you have this meat company, which is extremely set on being humane and doing the best thing for the soil and the environment for the animals. So talk a bit about like where that inspiration kind of came from and like why Belcampo? My broader inspiration in culinary and being in food started from a desire to be helpful in my own family. Mm. My mother used to get very anxious and overwhelmed when she was cooking. And so I started cooking at a young age to help. So that's like many things. It's like has an origination in the dynamic you have in your family. My interest in culinary really morphed to more of an interest in wellness and like food as it relates to health. I had an experience of moving to Europe, working in dairies as a cheesemaker and just having a really radical transformation of my own health and physically getting stronger, feeling uh, my mood vastly improved on like a high fat, high protein diet. So in my early 20s, I basically went from being on a low fat 90s girl diet to being in a really like almost like keto, really basic foods, tons of fat, tons of animal products, and, and just vastly improved my health. So that my interest in meat really came out of a space of just health. Now, in terms of Belcampo, it's a related narrative. I moved to Italy in 99 and moved back in 2006. And in that time, I had, you know, started in a cheesemakers co-op. I started out making cheese and I worked for a cooperative of cheesemakers. And then I actually worked, I directed a microfinance program focused on marketing and product development for small-scale food producers. And I did that in Northern Italy. So I'd had this sort of varied career already in food. I moved back to my home state of California. I grew up between California and Oregon. And in that time, I had developed just a real taste for meat and really thrived on meat. Came back home to California, kept my diet as it was, gained 40 pounds in three months just my health just like fell off a cliff and I felt like I wasn't doing anything different. And the truth is I wasn't doing anything different. And that was the problem. Like I kind of switched, uh, kept my diet as it was, but switched to kind of a vastly inferior caliber of product. So I immediately, you know, tried to get my health back on track. At that point I was like overweight, uh, struggling. My, I felt lethargic, like a brain fog. It was, I was a mess, honestly. And I started, I actually bought a whole cow to be able to get really clean meat. So I bought a whole cow in 2006, my first whole cow. I bought a whole pig that year. And I started to buy meat and distribute it among friends. Uh, like I would just organize, you know, shareholders basically to buy a cow. And I did that for a few years and I got my health back together. And I, I've, you know, developed the kind of approach that I have today, which is like, I'm really cautious about not how much I eat, but what the caliber of what products I eat. Right. So I, I eat a lot of things, but I eat super high quality foods. So it took me a minute to figure out that's how I navigate the American food landscape. And in doing so, I discovered that to get access to super high quality meat, you had to be 
crazy. I mean, at the time I ran, I had started a produce distribution company in 2005. I later sold and I, I had a, like a van, a refrigerated van, a couple little, I had a little bit of infrastructure. So I was able to get this cow driven back to the Bay Area from the rural area where it was raised. Like I had some infrastructure. If I hadn't had that, it would be totally impossible to do that. So it was like the barriers to entry in meat were so massive, right? And I really got my head around that. So after I built and sold a couple different businesses, up until 2008, I'd sold the business. I was ready for my next kind of thing. And it was 2008. So it was a, it was a real mess. And I took a step back and decided to start a consulting company to spend a few years waiting out the economic recession and also to sort of figure out my next step. I want to do something bigger, you know? And I, um, through my business, I came in contact with lots of different great clients. Um, I built that consulting shop up to be a, a small business that was successful and worked with a lot of different clients. And one of my clients became my business partner because he had actually bought land in Northern California. He commissioned my company to do some work for him to figure out how he could make money off of some land that he owned in Shasta in far Northern California. And, you know, when I first went up there to see the land, I was like, oh my God, this reminds me of Italy. You know, it was like very pristine and beautiful and kind of what we call brittle, like sort of like these, these this type of uh, quality of land that's not like highly fertile. It's a little bit like more stressed in a way that produces very good quality food typically. So I really, really resonated with the land, with this place. And then of course, you know, the only thing we could do there would be ranching and livestock. So that was this massive like opportunity handed to me where somebody said, hey, why don't you design a business that could make this make sense? And I did. And by 2011, I had agreed to leave my consulting firm and run that business full time for him that I had designed. So I developed a name for the company. I bought the piece of land in Wairika where I built our, our slaughterhouse, a USDA certified slaughterhouse that we built in 2011, 2012. And then we officially opened the plant in our first shop in 2012. That's amazing. And to hear stories like this, it's incredible, especially because given your background in the culinary business, and then also just somebody who probably you were exposed to a lot of the factory farming, right? And traditional agriculture. And from what I understand, that was part of your inspiration, right? Was your, you saw a problem, you saw that the way these animals were being treated, what it was doing to our environment was just not, not good. It wasn't sustainable. So talk a bit about like, cause a lot of people who are listening, that's a big thing is like traditional versus sustainable, you know, agriculture and how Belcampo kind of separates itself. My experience of conventional agriculture is actually pretty limited. You know, I've never worked in conventional ag. I've worked in animal agriculture on and off for two decades, but not in ever in the conventional space. So I can't speak to it from an insider's perspective, but I can speak to what I know about it from the outside and from having colleagues who work in that space. You know, the, the differences between our style of farming and conventional are just, it's radically different. I mean, you start just with a carbon footprint. Our style of ranching, beef and lamb in particular, is actually carbon impact positive. So we actually take carbon out of the environment and put it into the soil. That's massive, right? That's massive. That's such a different paradigm than conventional beef. Conventional beef takes tons of carbon out of the earth and doesn't put it anywhere, right? So it's such a very, very different system in every single step of the way. How that translated into the passion for me was like, I think I thought back in 2010, people were going to want something different. You know, you look around America, most people struggle with obesity. 
I think the majority of, you know, of Americans struggle with obesity. I think that's an issue that with COVID has really come to light, you know, that there, we have an immune compromised population. Most people seem to be really like almost extreme in their diets because it's so hard to navigate the landscape of American food that we just, we opt for these really extreme protocols because it's the only thing we can do to not like just gain weight, feel sick, be inflamed, et cetera. And to me, as somebody interested in health, I, you know, protein's the place that I start, right? Not just because I think protein's good for my energy levels or whatever. It's more that I start from protein because I share most of my DNA with animals that I eat. So if I'm going to start with my own wellness, what, what's the thing I want to look to solve first? Well, I'm going to solve for the thing that is most like me that I'm eating, mm. right? Because if that animal has been raised in an obesogenic environment, which is what conventional ag is, it's an obesogenic environment. So it's an environment that between a maladaptive calorie intense diet and a highly stressful environment, it's been engineered to create rapid weight gain just like America for humans, right? It's been engineered to give you too many calories and not enough movement. So if I'm going to look to fix my own health and, and start from a bedrock of wellness, I'm going to start with animal wellness. So I've always felt that there's an opportunity for consumers in that, you know, that there's going to be a moment that people say, looking at their health and saying, okay, where, where do I start from? And I think I should start from protein. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really funny that you said everything in the way you did, because I think I agree, we are in an, an obesity epidemic in America, and we are trying to chase the next diet and, and everything else. But I think looking at like from the ground up, I feel like you have to have a deeper connection to something other than yourself to really want to change, whether that is the environment, whether that is, you know, the health and well being of your kids, your family, whatever it is. And that's what I love about what you started with Belcampo is because there's a greater, you know, connection outside of it. And what I do know is that what you feed your animals is so different than what conventional agriculture is feeding their animals. And, and the reason I know this is because I've been, you know, exposed to it a little bit. I mean, I've had friends who were farmers growing up and, and also just what I've learned in like just taking environmental science classes where it's like, okay, never in environmental science, they say, okay, in order to reduce the footprint of agriculture, do you say, don't eat meat? It's like, no, buy local you know, feed the animals in a sustainable and a healthy way, and you'll reduce the carbon footprint, right? So mm -hmm. what kind of things do you feed your animals at Belcampo that are different that might surprise some people? We feed an evolutionary diet, which means we feed animals based on their evolution, how they naturally existed. Look at cows. They are ruminants. They have five stomachs that go different sizes. They have five stomachs because they take really high fiber, low nutrient density food of grasses and they convert that into muscle mass. You know, you or I would get really sick if we tried to eat grass because we're monogastric. We only have one stomach. Mm. Cows have five stomachs. What they were not designed to eat is what they're fed in conventional agriculture which is uh, seeds, you know, corn, and then things like sawdust and candy and other junk, honestly. So what we are looking to do at Belcampo is simply feed animals a healthy diet. I often get the question, like, you guys are organic. What if animals get sick? And the answer is, like, if we get something like pink eye, which happens occasionally because 
um, cows' eyes get scratched when they're grazing at times from like seed pods. We'll, we'll administer antibiotics. But the reality is that the animals very rarely get sick, just like you or I when we're eating really well, spending time with our family and loved ones, spending time outside, moving a lot. Don't get sick, you know? Um, and that's typical for the animals that we, we raise, right? So we're looking to create an evolutionary diet, natural and free range. Animals get a lot of exercise. They grow slowly. So an example of our chickens. Our chickens take about eight to 10 weeks to come to wait for harvest. In conventional agriculture, it's two and a half weeks. So we're between four and five times as long of a lifespan to achieve the exact same weight. So what's happening there? Like what's happening? How can you make something go five times as fast? You know, think about that. Like if you saw one child that grew to be, you know, six feet tall, instead of getting to six feet tall when he's 16, he got there when he was two. That's like the equivalent, right? Or three. That'd be crazy. You'd say that's something's really wrong with that three-year-old. That's not going to be a healthy person, right? That's what we do in animal ag. We put the animals on this very, very rapid trajectory of growth. So what we do that's different is we slow things down. We practice regenerative agriculture. We use the animals in low density. We move them around the pastures. We actually sequester carbon in the soil. And we keep the animals on an effectively an evolutionary protocol. So eating a mix of primarily grasses, occasionally with seed pods or other things in them, but really they're out at pasture eating natural grasses, moving around. In the case of our beef, it takes, you know, about 24 to 26 months to come to a full maturity and conventional agriculture, it's 16 months to get a beef to the full weight. So just again, look at that. It's effectively an obesity conditioned environment. You know, you're putting them on a fast tractor, rapid puberty, rapid weight grain, and then their, their process after that. So I look at the kind of marketing ways to say it's like the way it should be or the way it used to be. But it's really, to me, it's like the ethical thing. You know, it's the ethical thing to do. It's put animals that you're going to be eating into an environment where they're super healthy and they can have exercise, light, fresh water, and natural food. It's what we should be doing. Yeah, and I admire you for doing that because – I know it takes a lot more work, a lot more patience, and probably like longer to see some financial success because it's not mass production. Things aren't happening overnight. And I think as Americans, that's what we want, right? Like we don't really, we want things to happen as fast as they can and to be able to make the most amount of money as possible in the shortest amount of time. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is the dangers in, in, in eating like the, the traditional farming and the factory farming and what kind of goes into all that. I remember I was trying to make my grandparents aware of it. And I just remember I was at a grocery store and I said, look at this organic grass-fed chicken breast compared to the, the factory one. And the size of it was insane. Just like you, what you were saying, comparing a two-year-old to a 16-year-old. So what are some things, like I think consumers, probably people listening to this, I mean, a lot of them probably don't eat organic. They don't eat grass-fed because it's A, probably price or B, they're just unaware. Like, what should consumers kind of look for when buying meat and like what should they know to maybe like enhance them to shop more locally or even at Belcampo or, or places that treat their animals with a higher quality? Sure. Absolutely. So the first thing is like, why make the choice? Because mm -hmm. my type of product and farms like ours, they're going to cost a good deal more. So I'd say the first question is like, you got to get bought into the reason to make the choice. 
And the reason to make the choice is there's really clear health benefits to eating free range pastured natural meats. And those have to do primarily with the types of fatty acids that the meats have, and then some of the protein absorption that's different. So I'd say broadly, inform yourself in the literature. I don't need to go through it necessarily, and I'm not a nutritionist, but you should you know, be bought into the proposition, understand what you're doing, because you will uh, learn that natural meats are better for your body. They also have some really cool things like just higher density of protein, and natural meats are also more satiating. You actually feel full faster. Those are cool. Some nice perks, right? So let's assume that you're bought in. You want to do it. You want the omega-3s. You want to feel healthier. You want to feel good about what you're doing in the planet. You want to feel good about how you're treating animals, okay? You go to the grocery store. Unfortunately, there's no single metric, right, that is going to give you um, a, a clear decision point. And that's what the problem is with, with meat. I'd say that the first choice would be if you can buy direct from a farm, you can buy from us on e-commerce. There's other farms like us and other people that source like us, like White Oak Pastures is one and um, Porter Road. Those are both in the Southeast. In the, you know, there's, a, there's a number of direct to farm type of operations, right? Wild Pastures is another one. Go to bellcampo.com, of course. Like, there's a number of places you can buy direct through the postal service or FedEx. Then the next level would be if you have a farmer's market where there's a meat vendor, that's absolutely going to be from one farm and it's absolutely going to be a free range product. That's another great option. If you're in a grocery store, what you're looking for from a label perspective varies by species. So for beef, if I'm buying beef in a grocery store, my non-negotiables are grass-fed and grass-finished. Grass-finishing is very important. Grass-finishing is when you retain the right omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. If you finish on grain after a lifetime on grass, it doesn't matter, right? You actually lose that ratio. So grass-finish is very key. In beef, another non-negotiable is pastured and free-range, those words, okay? Negotiables for me in the beef would be organic because typically, you know, getting pasture land certified as organic can be expensive and problematic. So there's some reasons why people might not have that organic certified. Another thing is certified humane. If it's pastured and free range and grass fed and finished, that's going to be a humane animal. So I'm not as worried about a certification around humane. So again, for beef, non-negotiables, grass fed, grass finished, pastured, free range. Words that I don't give a damn about with beef. Natural means nothing. Angus, total bullshit. I mean, the majority of the American beef herd's Angus, so don't tell me it's Angus. It's like saying it's a cow. Prime, that's the biggest, biggest misleading thing out there. People say, oh, I buy beef. It's I get prime beef at Costco. Prime is a visual analysis about fat content. What does fat content tell you? It tells you effectively how inflamed and sick the animal was. So when you're getting prime, you're getting a visual scan. It means nothing about cleanliness, sanitation, quality, provenance. It means nothing. Somebody has looked at a product with a card next to it that shows fat veins in it and said, this looks like that. That's it. So I really, really encourage you to read up what prime actually means and don't go for it. It absolutely means nothing. Another thing I'm always going to stay away from is Wagyu and Kobe. Those meats are sold at a really high price. They're all corn fed and they're the ultimate in like obese animals, right? <laughs> I see I see a Kobe beef or a Wagyu beef those veins of fat and people on Instagram like, oh my God, check out and throw this on the grill. And I'm like, that looks like, like sickness and death to me. <laughs> I mean, it's such an unhealthy animal. It's like as if you're taking a picture of like a 
like a 700 pound toddler and being like, look at how cute. You're like, no, there's something really wrong. Like somebody get that kid some help, right? It's so off and weird to me, but we've gotten this fetish around intramuscular fat that's totally bananas and doesn't, that stuff is not good for you. I debate whether or not it tastes delicious. I think if you want that much fat in your meat, get a good grass-fed steak and dip it in some butter and you're, you're golden. That's going to be delicious and hella healthy, you know? So that, that to me is like, so again, what I, what I don't give a hoot about, Angus, Prime, Natural, and Wagyu. Avoid those. I feel like that's um, like a, I mean, real quick, I feel like that's more like a status thing. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm eating Wagyu tonight or Prime. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of it because it was just funny. I was telling my grandparents the other day, I was like, wow, I got like Prime cuts of like filet on sale. But now, like hearing you say that, it's totally even changed my perspective as somebody who does. I mean, I eat a lot of grass-fed beef. Like that's like I've been eating grass-fed beef for probably like five or six years when I first started hearing about the benefits and the omega three content and mm-hmm. the the way that your body processes it. But just even like what you said, it's inspiring. Mounts inspiring me even more to take a closer look. And you're right, like the Angus and all the other natural, like the marketing, it's kind of like gluten-free chicken. Like I hope the chicken's gluten-free, Hell right? Like, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Absolutely. Fat-free water. You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's totally one of those. It's like when big industry starts to use a claim, you're like, you got to always question it, you know, because it, they're probably just trying to, to get credit for something that they're already doing. So the, the you know, beef is fortunately you can get pretty decent beef in most grocery stores now, at least, I mean, even like your Kroger's and everybody, they're, they're going to have a frozen grass-fed and finished product available, if nothing else. So that's a pretty easy one to, to win at. The other, um, you know, w- with beef too, I love single farm, you know, or like a collective or collaborative farms. One thing you have to be careful about is, you know, most beef that's that's uh, ground, you know, you might see on the back of the package, like product comes from Mexico, Uruguay, America, Australia, you know, it's all in one burger. So just from a risk perspective, I would like safety perspective, I'd be kind of like, you know, well, I'm going to look for a single farm because I would like you know, not to not have, you know, 20 different farms in every single hamburger that I'm making because just from a safety perspective, it seems like a good way to minimize my risk for myself and my kids. So yeah, but lamb, I'd say pretty much the same things. You know, a lot of lamb comes from New Zealand. It is a feedlot product. I'm not a fan of New Zealand lamb because it is a feedlot product. I'm always looking for American grass-fed and finished lamb. I, I know there's good product in South America as well. It's not widely available in the U.S., but I, I, I'm also always going to look for a grass-fed and grass-finished and, and preferably a certification of humane is good, uh, so you're sure it's not in confinement for lamb. Yeah, and... I think for those listening, like definitely take what Anya just said to heart because I believe when it comes to stuff like this with grass fed and everything, you kind of get what you pay for and you're either going to invest in your health now and invest in yourself because you're worth it or later down the road. Because remember like a lot of like the biggest things that people are dying from, it's all lifestyle choices. And a lot of that is what we eat, of course. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you is the one of the most the dirtiest quote unquote organizations I think there is is the FDA and how, you know, pretty much like I think they're one of the most the highest, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, lobbied government organizations there is. And I feel like they let so much slide when it comes to the meat industry. So talk a bit about like some of the things that you've either heard or you're aware of that maybe people might not know and it might change their mind on how they shop. Sure. I mean, I deal a lot with the USDA and the FDA. 
I will say I've dealt with enormously high integrity and awesome individuals in those organizations. I've also, you know, seen the other side, but I'd say broadly my experience in working with them has been terrific, but I'm sort of like small ball. You know, we have a small plant in Northern California. In terms of the lobbying impact, I'd say that I'm going to give you a test case of something that I find particularly aggravating, which is in chicken, you notice how all of a sudden Tyson started to say it's antibiotic free. Right. You remember that? Like all of a sudden, all of Tyson was antibiotic free. And you're like, wow, how'd they do that so fast? Right. Because we all know that chicken, well, we maybe, I hope you all know that chicken grows at 1.5 times the rate with antibiotics than without. What? Right. Isn't that crazy? So what, is the, you know, what do the antibiotics do? Do it just, it just speed up like the, their growth? What does it do to like have them grow that much faster? I am not an animal science expert. What I have understood though, is that you suppress the microbiome mm. by antibiotics and you increase the inflammatory response. Oh, uh, okay. I got it. Okay. okay. That makes sense. So what happened is that Tyson got under fire because, you know, within three miles of every chicken farm in America, you would find people who were resistant to tetracycline because there's tetracycline in the air and in the water, right? You also had things like low birth weight and really high um, spontaneous abortion rates in people in living around chicken and pig farms awful stuff tied to antibiotics. So what happens in the, you know, in the regulatory climate where from one day to the next, you can all of a sudden say antibiotic free. Well, what happens is that if you read the fine print, it says no prophylactic antibiotics. So that means like no like preventative medicine antibiotics. Like what they were saying is that we were, they would just be, and all the food that was given to the chickens had antibiotics in it for no reason, just to make them fat. Okay. So that effectively became outlawed, but they said, if the chickens are sick or at risk of getting sick, you can give them the antibiotics. Well, you got 9,000 chickens in like 300 square feet. Or I don't know what the metrics are, 3,000 square feet. Like you have an insane density of chickens. You have limited air circulation. They're all flying around in each other's poop. Like, of course they're at risk of getting sick. Right. So all of a sudden you have the exact same product, the exact same inputs, but it says no antibiotics right? And all you need is a veterinarian or 500 on your payroll saying, yes, those chickens were at risk of getting sick. That's not a critical third-party type of claim. Do you follow me? So like, that's the kind of thing where I say, you know, you're just getting away with something and you let, you let industry get away with something there because you let them effectively make a claim that consumers wanted, that consumers cared about, but not have to make any meaningful changes in their own behavior or corporate actions. So I, I think that, that's, you know, that's, that's crazy. And I think another, yeah. yeah, like this too, hormones, right? No hormone, no added hormones. Well, hormones are actually not used and they're banned for use and they have been forever in pigs and chickens. And it's not because anybody's a saint. It's because they've, we've never found an effective hormone and antibiotics work much better than hormones for chickens and pigs. So there's no hormones. We don't have any effective hormones. We couldn't use them if there were, although we'd probably change to make them work if we did, right? But there are none. But every Tyson package says no hormones. It's like, well, congratulations, you're just minimally complying with the USDA. But you're allowed to put that on your label. When I want to put something on my label that says like, whatever, slow growing, I have to get legal support to make a case to the FDA that, you know, documentation, reams of paper to do this. But big industry can just go in there and just make these like really superficial claims that are meaningless and, and sail through. And I think it's at a total disservice to the, to the consumer. 
So I think some of the, the hold that the big ag has around the, how they're able to message their product to consumers is totally abusive to consumers. They're asking for things, they want cleaner meat, and they're being given false promises. Yeah, and I think it's just up to us as the consumer to continue to do our research on our own health. I mean, that's one of the biggest things I say to even my personal training clients is you think about you spend two, three, four, five months shopping what kind of car you're going to buy. Yet we don't even think twice sometimes about what we're going to put inside of our bodies. We don't think twice about where the meat comes from. We don't think twice about where the vegetables come from. And so I encourage people to take more time to research like where the meat comes from, research the USDA, research the FDA, you know, watch as many documentaries as you can and draw your own conclusions, draw your own opinions. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is I know that how you raise an animal can kind of dictate like the illnesses that breed from how you raise it, right? I know like one of the biggest concerns I've always had with cooking chicken is am I going to get salmonella? Am I going to get E. coli? Am I going to get these diseases or these illnesses because I didn't cook it, you know, through and through or I didn't wash my hands? Like, how does like raising the way you raise the animals dictate your chances of getting things like that? Awesome question, Doug. I mean, first off, salmonella and E. coli, that means there's poop on the meat. Ooh. Sounds Just shitty. To be clear. <laughs> <laughs> like there's that I, when we say that there's meat that has E. coli, we are saying that there is poop on the meat. I just want to be clear because I think people don't always realize that they're like they think it's like the flu or something that's like that's in the sub it's like no, there's actual something that was inside the intestinal tract that's now on the meat. Mm. Okay. And that in and of itself is gross, right? So, that, that alone should make people want to spend the extra money on grass-fed beef. Anybody? Right? Yeah. I mean, and the, and the risk of contamination with that, the more times you cut it, the more times there's people's hands touching it, there's more companies that are involved in the process, the more, you know, the more risk factors there are. And you think there was a lot of noise about pink slime a couple of years ago. Or remember that all pink slime and oh, burgers yeah. and things. And it's like, well, what they were doing is taking really low quality meat and just adding bleach to it to kill off the inevitable poop in the meat, right? I mean, those are, oh, that's I remember a, that. that was disgusting, disgusting, right? But so when you're saying, what do I do to limit my exposure to E. coli? I ask you, Doug, like, don't you think as an American, it's your right if you'd like to buy meat without poop on it? Like, of course. wouldn't that be awesome? Like that you could just say, hey, I, I choose to have meat that I do not have to overcook to kill the pathogens. Right. And I think I, like to follow up to that, I think a lot of Americans, and a lot of people in general, I think it's black or white. They're like, oh, like I, I, I see all these dangers of meat and what they're doing. So that means all meat's bad or all chicken's bad or all this. They don't know about yeah. companies like Belcampo. And what it's really fascinating about you and I want to give you some major credit is that you've, you've taken a major problem and you've given a great solution. You've taken something that you saw there was something that wasn't around and now you've created it for yourself and your, and your company. And we'll talk about it a little in a little bit on how you're now seeing a lot of success from it. but you know, continue on like what you're talking about with like the consumer and like poop on the meat, like and how like we can kind of change that with buying grass fed meat. Absolutely. So when is that likely to happen? Right? right. It's likely to happen when people are moving really quickly and when you have sick animals. So there's a reason why we have these epidemics of E. coli and feedlots. And the issue is that 
So E. coli, it actually makes a cow have diarrhea and throw up and sick to its stomach like it makes you or me. A cow doesn't just have E. coli in its, in its intestines. A cow is sick when it has E. coli. So when you have cows that are being fed corn, and so they're inflamed, they're sick, they feel terrible, right? They're more prone to getting sick in that time. Okay. So when you have ants on animals on a maladaptive diet, it's the same thing as if, if, if you were to eat just Fritos for two months, how much more likely would you be to contract a, a flu or catch a virus from somebody that you know, are sitting next to on the bus, right? right? You're obviously, when your immune system suppressed because of poor diet choices, lack of movement, et cetera, you're going to get sick then. So you put these animals, you, you suppress their immune system, you give them antibiotics to kind of prop them up. They're, they're more likely to get sick. So those feedlot animals are much more likely to have E. coli in their guts. So there's risk factor number one. Risk factor number two is when you're moving these large slaughterhouses and large operations, you have animals in close confinement. You have lots of um, speedy slaughter and speedy processing, really, really highly mechanized as well. I think we all are really aware of what you know COVID surfaced for us in terms of the meat supply crisis. I, I personally was pretty horrified reading about some of those operations, what those looked like on the inside, you know, like what, what was happening in those meat plants, why those workers all got so sick. It's like, they were like cheek by jowl, moving fast, you know, running around, no, you know, you know, like very, very difficult environment to control because there was so much motion, things were happening so fast and they're so crowded. That's what slaughterhouses are like. That doesn't seem to me from what I read about those plants during the crisis, like a great place to have a detail-oriented, clean operation. You know, they're hectic, they're fast, they're pushing huge volumes of product out. So, you know, these plants, like our plant, we kill on a big beef day, we kill 60 cows. A big plant will kill 600 cows in an hour. Holy moly, wow. Okay, yeah, so you're talking just vastly sped up mechanized operations. So those are two things. It's like, first way to control E. coli, don't have sick cows. Second way to control E. coli, be really careful and go slow when you kill them. And those are both things that in big industry, we have, we, we do the opposite. Now, I want to point it out though, what has big industry done in, in beef and in, in, in meat? It's so cheap. Like they've done a really, we asked in America, we love cheap meat. We love barbecues. We love piles of meat. Like it's this American, you know, obsession. And so the industry did a good job at doing what we as consumers asked them. We we're like, we want more of this stuff. We love meat. And they were like, we got you. Here it is, you know, buck 99 a pound for all this stuff. But there's a cost to that. Obviously, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I don't think that uh, uh, Americans are broadly like hip to the, what they're paying for. Like we're paying for it in compromised food safety. We're paying for it in poor health outcomes for ourselves. We're paying for it in planetary destruction. When we're paying for it in just like, I think energetically, you know, vast numbers of animals that are being you know, tortured and hurt, right? So that's a big cost that we carry as humans, but there, there is a, another side to it, which is that the product's also extremely cheap. Yeah. Right? I, I, and it's funny you say that. And like, I, I love my grandparents to death. Um, and if they're listening to this, I'm sorry, but they will buy meat from Sam's club. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's here. It's like a, it's like a lower grade Costco. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally and, right. Of course. Um, and the meat, you know, it's super cheap. And there's been times on multiple occasions where they've had to return the meat because it was so shitty. Like it was the quality was so bad. And I'm like, when you have to return meat, you probably shouldn't be buying that kind of meat. And I mean, I, it's just, 
to me, I've never had to return meat. And I'm not saying it's because I buy, I've only bought grass fed, but I'm just like, you get to a point where you're like, all right, if you're paying a dollar 99 a pound for meat that, you know, grass fed and, and raised properly is 10.99. I'm just making this up. That means you're eat you're you're theoretically eating meat that's ten times less healthy yeah. than the above. And I'm not talking about calories. I'm just talking about what it like what it does for your body. And yeah. you know, doing and doing the research on like what it can do in the longevity of your health, how it can cause cancer, how it can co- increase your risk of heart disease, all these things. And the meat isn't bad. It's the way it's raised that's bad, just like anything else, right? There's not just a one size fits all approach. So, you know, when it comes to Belcampo, I know you have built a company that is founded on some high standards, great values. And because of that, we've hit a lot of um, obviously adversity now during COVID, and you've been able to pivot in a very profound and you know really inspirational way with being in the restaurant business right i mean restaurants have been get, getting crushed like some of my most favorite restaurants locally have been shut down because of, of covid so talk about how you've pivoted belcampo more in the online space how you've seen success with it i mean i saw you know i got a, pa- a care package today that came within a few days and how you know this is really like reshaping you know the industry yeah covid's actually been amazing for our business um and we have started to sell a lot on e-commerce. I think we built some customer relationships that are going to grow. And we're investing now heavily in e-commerce to build that. I think there's a huge opportunity to get people clean meat right to their homes, especially since I think a lot of people have ordered stuff that they never thought they'd order. You know, I'm among them. Like I'm buying direct from brands I've loved and this never even knew they had a website, you know? So that's been great. And then in our restaurants, we've also really increased our volumes, um, surprisingly, in COVID. We actually are up about 30% against pre-COVID, which is insane, like very different from the rest of the industry. And that's been just incredible luck in having, you know, some tech platforms that were really ready to go. But I also think having a product that's really health aligned and health supportive has been super helpful for us in terms of keeping our customers engaged in this time. We sell a lot of bone broth, a lot of grass-fed hamburgers. You know, I think people when they're during COVID, they were like, they're kind of paying attention to health and immunity, you know? So I think that the product mix that we offer was appealing. Now I do, we have had to shut down three restaurants, some of them potentially permanently because they're in enclosed malls and we just don't see a future you know, so there's, it's not like it's been all roses and it's been a hell of a ride, you know, just like in terms of the supply chain and pivoting and getting things working. But broadly, I'd say it's been a really positive experience. And I think it's moved the consumer down a path that can help brands like mine survive. You know, it's not a given that we're going to survive and thrive. You know, we, we've got to grow. We have to um, bring our farm to scale. Like there's a lot ahead of me, but having this sort of moment where a lot of consumers woke up to how bad the system is that they're buying from, I think is going to be in retrospect, like the turning point for Belcampo. Yeah. And you're right. I think people are now buying things. They never thought you're right. That they would buy online. Like who, I mean, even things like toilet paper and paper, like who would have thought like most people, like they like going in the stores and getting stuff like, you know, I mean, alone aside from toiletries, but they like going down the meat aisle and looking at the meat and they like, you know, getting their, you know, different milks and their different vegetables. And now it's like the grocery stores are pretty much 
they're almost like scarce, right? There's people in there, but not like it used to be. And it's just really funny to see that like now with, with the, the increased awareness on health and immunity that health conscious companies like yours are going to, are going to thrive because now people are more cognizant of it. They're like, wow, like I want to make sure that my risk for getting these viruses is substantially lower than, you know, other people. So I got to change the way I eat. So where is like kind of Bel Campo going in the future? Like what, how, what is this pivot doing? Are you guys going to be mainly focused on like your business online with delivery, like in being more sustainable that way? Like what's it look like? We're looking at really building our e-commerce um, more. We are, you know, our restaurants, we're delivering a lot of raw meat as well because we also have butcher shops. So we do a lot more raw meat delivery. We have an app with delivery in it. So people have been ordering a lot of like chickens and eggs and things like that delivered to their homes. So that's been huge for us. We're also beginning to open a few channels through grocery. So we currently sell in Air One markets in Southern California. And I'm adding right now Met Market in Seattle and then Nugget Market in Northern California. So we're adding a few grocery partners. The grocery channels aren't really, you know, for every one of our products because they're pretty costly, you know, like they, they're pretty low margin. And so it's more for like the sausages and the ground beef, but still it's a valid channel and, and it's a good way to get the product out there. That's amazing. And you should be super proud of yourself for all that you've accomplished. So, because, you know, it'd be easy to kind of quit and shut down because, you know, obviously the restaurant industry has really taken a a hurt during COVID. I mean, with obviously not being able to open and not being able to have people inside and you've kind of used this to be like, all right, even though some of my restaurants might not ever open up again, I'm going to pivot and change my perspective and really shift the industry hard into like e-commerce and being like, okay, if they can't eat my restaurant, I will bring the food to them. I will make sure that, you know, my mission and purpose of helping people eat more sustainably goes on because I'll make it more easily accessible to them. Right. And so the last question I want to ask you is I have a lot of people who listen to this that are entrepreneurs, they're young and they want to start a business. And I know you've obviously, you, and I'm not going to say you've really figured it out because we've never really, we never really figure it out, quote unquote, but we definitely learn a lot of lessons along the way. What would be like, like a piece of advice or two you would give to somebody if they were thinking about starting a business? Mm, let me think about that. You know, I'd say don't rush into partnership. I think a lot of people rush into partnerships that then they have to unwind. Um, partnerships complicated and can be costly if it's not done right. Um, but there's that moment when you're starting a business where you're like, I can't do it alone. You know, I've got to like build somebody on. So that would be one thing is just really be careful about who your partners are and, and be cautious in how you build that out. Another thing would be don't hire your friends, even though it's really tempting in the early years, that ends up being a, another difficult situation to unwind. Third thing would be to be generous. I see a lot of small businesses being very defensive about things or like, oh, I can't, I can't give away product. I can't, I mean, you don't want to be stupid about things, but remember that generosity pays, pays dividends, you know? So being generous and, and, and um, engaging and stuff is, is really key. Another thing is like, I think it's very easy and I still get pulled this way too, but as an entrepreneur, a lot of people like want to quote unquote, pick your brain or like oh, they yeah. went to your college or your high school or, and, or they're a friend of a friend, they have some wacky business idea, or they have something they think they can, it's like, and, and maybe their business ideas aren't wacky, maybe they're amazing, but you get so many 
things like I could spend 15 hours a week on that kind of stuff. And I just, I say no to everything. And I, I feel at ease saying that emotionally. Cause I'm like, you know what, me being actually really successful in selling this business and growing it or whatever the outcome is, it's like, that's actually a much bigger win for everybody involved than me having a cup of coffee with another person about another thing. So um, I, I think you also just need to be cautious about your own time and, and um, give away your product, hit, you know, get people loving your product and loving you, but don't, don't feel obliged to take care of everybody. Yeah. And I think the one thing that kind of sums up, sums up everything you just said is having boundaries for yourself, having boundaries for who you're going to hire, having boundaries on who you're going to do business with, having boundaries for where you're going to give your time, because you're right. It's like when people see you've had success, they were the first people that you, your, your people you haven't talked to in decades, all of a sudden want to become your friends again because they see you on TV or they see you with a great company and they want to be like, Oh, like how about I reach out to Anya and see if I can have coffee with her. And you know, while it's, you have to give and help others there, you also have to be able to give and take care of yourself first. So, you know, one of the biggest things that we face in my, you know, this podcast called the adversity advantage is in the, the health industry is in the nutrition and food. And I'm extremely thankful to have had you on here to just walk people through the meat industry in itself, not only like how you've built your company, but also like the ins and outs and what to look for, because that's so key. And for those listening, you know, taking Anya's advice on like how to really like look at a package of meat, like how to like know what to buy and how to, you know, you know, kind of sift through all the bullshit that's out there. And um, I just want to thank you again for your time. I know it's valuable and this has been awesome. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And, um, you know, please check out, you know, Belcampo, check out Anya's, more on Anya's story. I mean, what she's built is once again, it's super inspirational and, you know, the meat that, you know, she provides is one that's going to really increase, you know, not only the longevity of your health, but the longevity of the environment. So once again, check out Belcampo, check out Anya. And um, thank you once again for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we will see you next time.